Welcome to the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Chris Larakis, Senior Manager at IBM in charge of quantum computing. We'll talk to Chris about quantum computing, what it'll mean for the future, and what's happening right now with IBM's quantum computing platform in the cloud. That was made available earlier this year to programmers, researchers, and anyone who just wants to play around with quantum computing. Enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm excited to be here. Chris, you and I first met in the shadow of some giant steam engines and uh, steam boilers. And now we're talking to you about something very, very modern. Many folks have read in the news about your team putting quantum computer in the cloud. You have a web interface where anybody can go and basically write a program. And then when their turn comes, that program is going to run on a real quantum computer, which I understand you have in a very cold refrigerator in your office. Uh, how cold is, is the refrigerator that your quantum computer lives in? So the, the actual quantum device is chilled to 30 degrees millikelvin. How cold I'm just is... going to give you an idea of the scale. Is uh, Kelvin scale is it's much like the Celsius scale, um, it, you know, kind of the uh, the metric system. And at room temperature, the rest of the world is around 300 Kelvin. So it's really cold. And if you've heard of the concept of absolute zero, that's 30 milligrees above absolute zero. So zero Kelvin is absolute zero. Yeah. Nothing's happening. That's the theory is that no molecular movement of any kind is happening. So all you've got, and just tell me if I got this wrong, all you've got at that state is whatever quantum behavior is happening. Does, does it arrest, does absolute zero arrest whatever it is? It's not movement, I guess, but whatever it is that quantum happens at the quantum level. Let me... Um... Let me back up and kind of give a higher level picture, and you can tell me if this is too abstract or not. Um, there are some analogies that you can make, and there are different types of quantum bits. And the I'm going to tell you why we use 30 degrees millikelvin. The quantum bit that we chose is actually a superconducting oscillator. That's all it is. And it's even as simple as saying it's an inductor and a capacitor together. We do something tricky in which we call put in place the inductor, what's called a Joseph's injunction, which behaves like a nonlinear inductor. I think that's not really that important for everyone in the world. But but when you say it's an oscillator, yep. does that mean you put electrical current in yes. and then it and it generates a signal? What you want to do is, again, if you think about this in terms of a, a radio circuit or anything like that, you hit this, in our, our case, it's a microwave signal of about 5 gigahertz. and you can change the state of the system. You can put energy in or you can take energy out of the system. The reason I'm bringing all that up is because why 30 milligrees Kelvin? There's still noise present in the system. But at that level, the amount of background noise uh, is so low that you don't have to worry about it changing the overall energy state of the qubit. Is that too low detailed? Well... It leads into a really good, it sets up a really good question, which is, what is a qubit? 
That is a good question. So a qubit is a quantum bit. There's a lot of analogies we can draw from standard computation. So we say a bit, which was, if you go back and you think about the history of things, the concept of a bit really wasn't around until Claude Shannon did a lot of his work on information theory many years ago. And we've been able to exploit that quite a lot in standard computation. But we, So everybody's kind of got the concept of what a bit is. I'm sure they've seen the movie Tron. That gives you like a <laughs> graphical idea of a bit. But it's really an on or off state. And in 1982, um, or thereabouts, uh, Richard Feynman hypothesized, uh, really made the statement of, you know, quantum mechanics is really hard. And if you want to actually solve this problem, you're going to need to solve it with a quantum computer. And he wrote a seminal paper, which kind of kicked off this whole thing. And in that, you actually talk about saying, well, we've got energy levels in any atomic system or any system, whatever, that's quantized. And I can assign a zero or a one to any two levels within that system. And so that's precisely what we do is a quantum bit. And in our case, we make an artificial system, um, but you can use uh, atoms of any type and you encode the zero and the one into two quantized levels within that system. That gets us back to a bit, just like the bits we have today. Correct. Zero and one. Okay. Yep. That's how you do that at the quantum level. What is special about a quantum bit? What am I getting with that that I don't get with a regular computer bit? Is it just faster? Well, there's two other aspects of this that end up being really interesting. The first of which is in an ordinary computer, you can be zero or you can be one, and that's it. In a quantum computer, because of the nature of the fact that you are using a quantized state, you can be in what's called a superposition. And for your mathematically inclined listeners out there, this is the same kind of superposition you would have in any linear algebra sense. Um, but it can be simultaneously in a zero and a one state. So that's that's an interesting and weird concept. So if I just limit myself into saying, um, in a classical computer, if I run and represent a fractional number, then I have to have many bits. And there's you can go and look at the IEEE standard on how they represent that. And it ends up being very difficult to represent a fractional number. But even with one qubit, the fact that I can be in simultaneously a zero and a one, I now can represent any kind of number in between. Now, I've told a little bit of a lie there because you know you, everybody says, well, you observe it. What happens when you observe it? Well, that's called what's called collapsing the wave function, and it will eventually go back to a zero or a one. The real fun comes when you take a lot of qubits together and you start to make them work together and we have this concept called entanglement. As a, a layperson who's, who's read a, a fair amount of reporting on quantum physics in general, I think, I think a fair number of other folks have as well, I read about those concepts on and off. I, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the idea of particle wave duality and and is that the superposition that you're talking about there, is it, or is it analogous to it? So that, that's an interesting and good question. It's not the same as superposition. The particle and wave duality is going to get you down into a rat hole and, and ends up being somewhat of a philosophy of um, you can think about anything in the same time of being a particle or a wave. There's a, a function for that. And if you think about it, if 
if you want to talk about that for a moment, maybe a little off topic, an electron microscope, you know, why is an electron microscope work? Because what you're doing is you're taking account of the wave characteristics of an electron. And when you accelerate it, the wavelength is extraordinarily short. It's on the, uh, the feature size of atomic dimensions. And so you can bring those out. So that's a wave particle duality. The superposition is really the state in which it can simultaneously be in a zero and a one. Electrons do have a superposition in them. It's in terms of the spin. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the, the concept of electron having a spin, but it does. So does that mean that it can be spinning clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time? Yes. Okay. So that's different than the way I'm used to thinking about that. So I think that gives me a good handle on what the superposition is. It, 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 whereas a wave and particle aren't necessarily fundamentally contradictory, spinning counterclockwise and clockwise at the same time are completely contradictory. I can't even picture that, yet you're telling me that that happens. I'll just accept that as part of the magic. Now, when I've heard about entanglement, that's often when folks are, are telling us that we're about to invent the Star Trek transporter. Um, is that the same type of that's the same type of entanglement that, that you're talking about here as, as part of the quantum computing system? It is exactly the same. Um, and people do have ideas about teleportation and the fact that you might have uh, faster than the speed of light types transmissions. And again, that's a very kind of deep discussion that we can go into. That's not something that we exploit that particular aspect of it. The entanglement is another weird concept, and I think you did grasp the idea using the spin, and maybe we can find a similar analogy. But if you have, let's use the electrons, because you seem to be really happy with that one, is if I have two electrons and they are entangled, there's no what is called separable state associated with those. And you can move them arbitrarily far apart. And if you measure the state of one electron, the second electron will immediately collapse into the same state. And this collapsing, is it right to say that it is caused by the very act of taking a measurement? Or is it more complicated than that? No, that is exactly that simple. It is the very fact of taking a measurement. So, Chris, let me let me bring the conversation back perhaps into a more general interest kind of area. It seems like from what I've read that uh, that the vision is for a um, a universal quantum computer that um, that hasn't been built yet. But uh, Chris, what would that what would that universal quantum computer be, and um, how close might we be to seeing it? Both really good questions. Let me start with how long is it going to take to get there? And the unfortunate answer is that that might be on the order of 10 years. And let me explain why that is. So if you say you want to do what we call gate-based universal quantum computing, uh, it requires error correction. As you can imagine, I'm talking about these kind of odd things, and the mere fact that you look at them uh, changes their state or collapses the wave function. And when this kind of overall looking at them, you can think of as the world around them being coupled to them. So they... We call this decoherence. And the types of qubits that we use, they decohere or lose their state very, very fast. And so we have some very complex forms of error correction. Now, I say complex forms, but honestly, they're quite simple. They're all 
fundamentally based on parity checks, which I think most of the standard community understands. Um, and then we build a single qubit into an aggregate and make a logical qubit. And then we tie many logical qubits together into a larger system that is now error corrected and can persist for a, a long enough time to do an interesting computation. And that may be days, years, or however long it takes to do a computation. So you'd say, oh, that's all well and fine. So where's the problem? And why do you say it's 10 years off? Problem ends up being is today, for the types of systems that we're currently using, it would take 100 physical qubits to make one logical qubits. And so to reach the universal gate-based quantum computing, it's going to take millions to hundreds of millions of qubits to solve a problem of interest. So you say a problem of interest. Now, you have a quantum computer that people can access through the cloud. And if, if I recall correctly, that's built up of five qubits. Is that right? That is correct. And are those five logical qubits? They are five physical qubits. Physical qubits. So what kind of problems can people solve? What kind of questions can they ask these qubits when they, when they go to your cloud interface to interact with them? At this point, it's more of an educational device. You, in terms of the logical qubit, I'm just going to put it in context. This is a very, very, you could see this is one part of a very small logical qubit, and it can do one of the two required parity checks uh, necessary to make a full-up logical qubit. But a number of experiments, um, and I'm going to now kind of delve into the saying from the academic community, have been done about last count. There were about uh, 35,000 experiments done, I think, to date that were unique. There have been six papers that have been published off this and one thesis. So I guess one of the logical questions you might ask is, why is this important and why would it be good for me? I think we view this as, it, you know, through our discourse, you're getting a feel for, this is really strange. It's really different. It's not the same as my intuition that I've been taught throughout my life. So this is a platform where you can go and you can read, you can play with the system and start to say, okay, I'm going to develop a brand new intuition about what can be the future be. We should probably point out, right, that this is this has really happened within, what, the last roughly six months? Is that is that about when the platform was kind of opened up to, uh, to other programmers, researchers? Uh, interestingly enough, it was May the 4th. So it, we didn't know it at the time because we're not geeky enough, but May the 4th be with you. Star Wars, Star Wars Day. <laughs> yes, it was Star Wars Day. None of us caught that one. You, you uh, touched on this, I think, a little bit with one of Brian's earlier questions when you know Brian was asking you about we're getting, you know, massively increased computing speed, right? But can you project on what some of the other applications of this might be? Yes, and so you can imagine that um, everybody is keenly aware of the types of applications, and to date, there have been a number of what I'd say are theoretical applications applied. And there's a, um, if you go to this website at NIST and the web page is called Quantum Zoo, and it has a listing of all potential applications. But I'm going to take you kind of on a little bit of a flight of fancy science fiction view of the future of where we hope to go. Um, let's take a nice simple one. I'm sure anybody has done simultaneous set of equations. I'm probably taking you back to your uh, high school days. I'm assuming both of you have done that at one point or another. I, I think I, 
Yeah, if we remember. <laughs> I, yeah, you, you said high school. That was a very long time ago. <laughs> but so that's an important problem. And let's let's talk about, you know, that you wouldn't use a quantum computer in this way, but it's a nice way to say, why is that of interest today? Um, let's suppose you've got an analog circuit simulator. You can express that entire electronic circuit in a whole series of linear equations, and you have to solve for the common set of variables that are in those linear equations. And that's how those, uh, the currently the analog simulators actually work. The algorithm that has been proposed to run on a quantum computer speeds up the solution for those polynomial equations substantially. It's much faster than a, uh, a ordinary classical computer can run. You so said analog. You said analog simulator. Yes, for analog circuits. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. Perhaps you've heard of the term spice, a spice yes. simulator. So yes, spice is used by folks who are developing electronic circuits to simulate yep. the circuits, so they don't have to build them and have smoke come out of the circuits in real life. They can have it happen virtually. And okay. so that, I'm trying to draw an analogy of saying, uh, underneath that are huge sets of simultaneous uh, equations, and that's something you could solve on an analog com or a quantum computer. It may not be something you want to, but you could. And so let's even go a little further. One of my, there are a couple of favorite applications that I'm looking forward to. My background is high energy physics. So there's a thing called lattice gauge theory which is really interesting. And I'm hoping that someday it will be able to solve those types of uh, problems. And another one, which I think is going to be really interesting, is in the financial market, uh, that you can run simulations and explore a lot of interesting spaces. As you imagine, the financial markets right now do run lots of simulations, try to, co to create competitive edges on buying and selling of options or currency or anything like that. So there's a quantum speed up for that type of work. And the one that is we're actively working on right now, and we believe is low-hanging fruit, is uh, trying to do chemical dynamics, which is really interesting. Um, we're going to start out, we've actually done a simulation of the hydrogen diatomic molecule, you might say, well, that's really boring. Well, it's a start. You have to start somewhere. <laughs> but the hope is that we're going to get to more complex uh, atoms and molecular structures in a short period of time. And the hope is that we will need a minimal amount of error correction for those types of simulations. Chris, this is really fascinating to me. And I want to play with this stuff all day. I have a feeling, though, that a refrigerator that cold and five qubits is probably outside of the budget of most of our listeners. If somebody wants a physical way, tangible piece of hardware they can interact with to experience these, uh, I guess, quantum effects, quantum switches, quantum gates, whatever you call them, is, is there something out there that, that they can build in their garages? So the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, no question about it. Um, let, let's start with the gyroscope, which is a very nice, it's not really a quantum device, but it's a very nice way of visualizing what happens when we actually do quantum operations. 
So it has associated with it in a classical way, spin dynamics. And so it, it emulates very closely what happens with an electron. And as you see these things, if you the gyroscope recesses, um, that you can think of that is the way NMR works. Um, when NMR? Nuclear magnetic resonance. Oh, I guess I'm using a non-politically correct term. I call it NMR, but the MRI imaging. Got it. So uh, in that one, the uh, what you're really doing is you're applying a magnetic field on your body, and the hydrogen atoms in your body start to align with the magnetic field. They start to, uh, when they get excited by an RF field, they start to process, and then they echo back um, from the RF field. And you can do a what is called a time-of-flight measurement to determine the position of where those hydrogen atoms are. And they usually have massive classical compute systems to do that. So a gyroscope is a way of kind of looking at that, and it's a fun way of doing it because you can buy gyroscopes almost anywhere. Even the toy ones work. You can see them process. You can see uh, if you get one that's gimbaled, you can see how you can put it in sort of a, an up state where it's pointing up, where it's pointing down, where it's pointing at the equator, which I think of as representing a superposition between a zero and a one. And you can see that it, it is a, like a single qubit emulation. But more fun if you want to um, actually say I'm dealing with a quantum effect. There's a very nice scientific American article that was put out some years ago. Uh, Paul Kuwait was the author on it. And it was do your own quantum erasure experiment at home. And it, you can do it with a laser pointer. And it talks about how do you make a diffraction grating. So this is a double slit experiment that probably everybody's heard of. Well, tell us about the double slit experiment because it's pretty neat. Okay. So the double slit experiment is one of the early ones that go, and they go back to an earlier part of our conversation where we're talking about the wave-particle duality. This is something that really drove people completely nuts, but we're going to talk about it in an optical sense for a moment. So you, you make this, you've got two tiny slits in some sort of mask, and they're close enough that they're integral number of wavelengths of the type of light that you're shining through. And then you're going to get two paths, and you can think of this as ray tracing out of those paths. But the distance is different along each path. So the wave fronts will then interfere with themselves. And then if you have a screen at some distance away, it will project onto that screen um, a pattern that shows this diffraction. At this point, we're talking about two pieces of cardboard, a laser pointer, and an X-Acto knife? Almost. Um, if you want to get into the details, I actually did this once. You get a, like a glass slide. And you can dissolve something like graphite and alcohol and you paint it on the glass slide. And you take two of the older style double-edged razors and you hold them together and you place it down on the slide very carefully. And then you lift it up and you will find you have two very nice slits that are properly spaced. Ah, and now you shine the laser beam through this and yep. you get a diffraction pattern. What, what does that tell you? So it shows you that you have to kind of use a little bit of your imagination here. You've actually got a large number of photons going through here. But somebody in the distant past did it where they went down to, you got down to a single photon and the same diffraction pattern existed. So this is where the quantum mechanics starts to get really interesting is, well, wait a minute. It has to go through one slit or another. 
Well, no, it, went, it can actually go through both slits at the same time and interfere with itself. So one photon through two slits at the same time, interfering with itself. Yep. And when 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 we do the many photon version, we get a diffraction pattern, and that tells us the same thing, but kind of in aggregate. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And uh, that that's a pattern. Is that a certain pattern that would only appear if single photons were going through two slits at once, which just, again, seems like magic. It is almost complete magic. <laughs> but it happens. And that's but it does universe, happen. And that's the universe we live in. Yes. So that is going to be a fundamental building block of the, this DIY quantum gate. Is that the right? Or is it or something? Well, no, different? it's not quite a quantum gate. You can actually, we're going to, a bunch of us were sitting there, if you saw us at the Maker Fair when we were demonstrating this, we were sitting about thinking about, okay, what kind of script could we put on the, the existing qubit system that would do exactly the same thing as what a laser going through two slits and then providing polarizers on it? And it ends up being a little bit tricky. I think that we should put that into a paper version <laughs> so that people could try it. <laughs> So with the simpler version of it, uh, what this Scientific American article I think you, you mentioned, what, what do you end up with? So the things that we haven't talked about are that you use three polarizers. And so let's talk about what a polarizer is. Because the interesting fact about light is that it does polarize. And you can say, think about it in terms of horizontal or vertical polarization in a reference frame in which you're talking about. And where does this start to get interesting? So you put the polarizer after the laser and before the slits, so that you believe that the light is now polarized at some sort of orientation. So it's either coming through vertically or horizontally. One of the features is if you cross the polarizers, so you can take your fingers and you can have your fingers both pointing up, the light will go through. But if they're at cross, then if I think one of my fingers is moving towards the other, it'll hit it. So it shouldn't be able to go through. And the same thing has happened with cross polarizers. So now, if you take it and you put in front of the double-slit pattern a polarizer and you rotate it, the pattern will slowly disappear. But if you take the third polarizer and put it back in the original polarized state, so say that you start with vertical polarization, I put it, say, a horizontal or a 45-degree polarizer in there, the diffraction pattern goes away, then I put another vertical polarizer, it actually reappears which means that it hasn't forgotten its original state. Another really, really weird concept. So, so Chris, one of the other things I've read about what you're, what you're doing there with the um, IBM Quantum Experience, which is the, the quantum computing platform, um, is that there's a corresponding goal of, uh, or hope of uh, building a, a community around quantum computing research. Um, can you talk more about that? Sure. And I'm actually really glad you brought that up. This is uh, another kind of personal mission of mine is if you think, of, let's let's for a moment imagine that this thing grows as all of us who are working on it believe it should and hopefully will. It, you're going to enter into a new era. And if you look at, we're at the end of an era right now where standard CMOS, the things that the transistors that make up your conventional computer today, we were living on Moore's Law. Well, we're at the end of Moore's Law. People are going to press it really hard and see if that actually happens. Um, but we're kind of at the end. And so this is the next thing. But there's a problem because 
in the academic community and around the world, not a lot of people are trained or know about kind of this paradigm. So how is that going to happen? We have to create this large community that starts to understand, well, how is this quantum computer going to work? What types of technologies are we going to need to develop? What are the educational curricula that has to go with this? We have to build that entire infrastructure, assuming that this is successful. So Chris, if any of our listeners want to find out more about you or what you're doing uh, online, where should they go? So we should go to the IBM Quantum Experience website. There's a lot of tutorials there, in addition to being able to play with the simulator or the real system. And there's actually a feed there where you can submit questions. And one of the experimenters in the actual laboratory will answer them. So Chris Larakis, Senior Manager at IBM in charge of quantum computing. It's, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much for hosting me. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you'll never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast, I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Blyle. <laughs>